He sees Jesus living a godly life, sacrificing himself in our place, his place, the sinner's place, in order to redeem him, to save him from his sins. In that place, then, at that point, the righteousness of God is imparted to him. He becomes a born-again believer, and he trusts in God for the salvation of his souls. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Lord, we recognize that when our Lord prayed, He prayed for His own, and He said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We understand that Jesus' words are truth. We ask, dear Heavenly Father, that this word that's spoken here would be true to your word. I pray, dear Lord, that your word would be made plain and clear. Hide the speaker behind the cross, behind the words spoken, that we might see Jesus clearly in his glory in his truth, in his character, in his perfection. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, that your word would have impact on all of our ears and our hearts and our minds as we consider this great book of Romans. We ask that you would bring forth the truth from the book of Romans so that we would understand salvation clearly and to the glory of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 24 in the Roman Revelation series. Jesus, Spiritual Power for Living is the title, and it's from Romans 8, verses 7 through 11. Jesus, Spiritual Power for Living. You know, life on earth reflects death, and alienation from God. Paul quickly reviews some in Galatians 5, 19 through 20. That is, some of the ways that life reflects death and alienation from God. Quote, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. You read the newspaper, you watch the movies, you just live life. You go to a job in your own home, and we see these things. We see them at work. We see them in our extended family if we're Christians and we're tr- giving every effort to apply faith to the, to the Word of God. And when we take ours, our eyes off the Lord, we, we see those elements in our own home. We see them in government, 
in false churches, in true churches, where the devil gains a stronghold, in entertainment, in books. Our culture is saturated with self, selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-attainment. And these things reflect death and alienation from God. The life of God reflects the best that men can be. James, in his letter toward the last part of chapter 1, contrasts two kinds of living, the true and the false in Christianity. One leads to death, and the other leads to life. It is living life at at, at its best here and now. James 1, 19 through 27 says says this. In the exercise of his will, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Now everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Therefore, ridding ourselves, yourselves, of all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers who deceive themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, And not a doer. He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who has looked intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and has continued in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an active doer, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's James 1. 19 through 27. So as we look at this passage and these verses, we learn this. You know, he's speaking to his hearers, and he's telling them that the church is something new. It's, it's a first fruits of among his new creation, what he's doing new in the world. So he tells them everyone should be what? quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's, you know, judging is part of life. It cannot be avoided. When Jesus said, don't judge, that passage, when you'll take a close look at it, it's really talking about don't judge wrongly. Don't be quick to judge and stand in God's place. But not making judgment is ridiculous. It's like walking across the street without making a judgment, whether it's safe or not. There's so many judgments that have to be made, good, important judgments. It's just the really bad kind of judging that is eliminated in the scriptures. Right, right here we're talking about making a judgment. The judgment is, 
How should you live your life? Should you be slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to get angry? Or should you be quick to hear what other people say, put them first, see what's really going on, and, and in this way you need to be slow to speak and slow to get angry? And then he says man's anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. What's first place in our life? Is it what we want, what we desire, or is it God? True religion, true Christian religion, puts God first in everything. It puts what he considers right first in everything. So therefore, he says, ridding yourselves of the filthiness that remains of wickedness. We're not perfect. A child of God brought to Christ, puts his faith in Jesus Christ, and begins to trust God for life, for living to make him a different person, the way he lives out his life. But there are things that remain. There, there, there's wickedness that remains. Uh, there's the need for humility to receive the implanted word so that we might be humble in the way we approach life. So we don't depend upon ourselves, but rather we depend upon God so for the saving of our souls. So then he's, he goes on and says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not just hearers. Now he's making a very important point. You know, it's one thing to hear. It's another thing to do. It's one thing to get the idea of how you should live life, the philosophy, the principles by which to live. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's another thing to live those out. And therefore he's saying, you know, be prove yourselves to be doers, not just hearers. And people who are just hearers and not doers are, are like men who look in a mirror, they see and then they go away, and they, just, they forget what they are. Now, Christianity is about much more than that. It's about seeing what we are and then turning from it. So he's talking about true religion is that which actually changes a person. A person who looks intently at the law, the law of freedom, and continues it. Now, this is true religion. And that's a person who takes life seriously especially about here helping other people. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. No, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So it's to be useful and helpful to those in need, and it's to depart from worldliness. The world is filled with the oldies found in Galatians. This, the idolatries, the witchcrafts, the strife, the jealousies, the outbursts of anger, all of that, which changes in Christianity. But Christianity can be true and it can be false. It can be hindered by a lack of faith, by taking one's eyes off of Christ and putting them on the world that surrounds us and pushes in on us and wants to us not to leave, but wants evil to continue. So that having been said, we need to answer a very big question. How do we get there? I mean, it's one thing to say this is what we must do. It's another thing, how? How do we do it? And for this reason, the New Testament is, is both on the surface leading a person to salvation, making the offer and giving the promises of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. And then it goes deeper in the understanding of these things. Now, to go deeper, a person has to be willing to meditate, consider, 
the things that are said in the word and then to place their faith in those things that are said. And it's hard because we're not a meditative society. We're an instant society. We look, we look at the TV, if we do, and we find that everything gets figured out in either a half an hour or an hour, and that's really long, you know, because we're more of a 280-character people now that look on Twitter and bing, bang, and it's done, you know. It's just a picture to taken in an, in an instant, in a second, and that's what you have, you know. But that's not the way it works in Christian Christianity. It's taking the time to consider the word, slowing down. The last thing anybody wants to do, we're all going at 90 miles an hour, and the devil loves it because God asks us to wait on him. You hear that? To wait on him, to spend time on your knees, to spend time in prayer, to spend time meditating on the word of God to understand what it means. And only in this way can a person come to know Christ. God will not be hurried. You don't rush into the presence of God. I mean, Moses standing before the burning bush, and God says to him, well, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. This is serious. Humble yourself. You know, you don't even, you know how a man feels when you're barefoot, not like you're running around with tongs at the pool. I'm talking about you're at a dinner party, and everybody's dressed to the tea, and you have to be the same as everybody else, and how funny you feel when you're not wearing a tie and a suit, and everybody's dressed up, let alone walking in without shoes. Before God, we humble ourselves. That's what's meant to be. Because God is the creator of the universe. He's the first. He's the last. He's always. He's eternal. All concepts we can't quite grasp. But this is who we're dealing with. I say all of that to bring us to the passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 11, by which we need to consider these things which with a little depth understanding and patience, waiting on God. So beginning at verse 7 from Romans chapter 8, it says this, Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. May God bless the reading of his word. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 11. Now in this section, we understand this, first of all, from verses 7 8. Hostility toward God is not pleasing toward God. Hostility toward God is not pleasing toward God. Because the mindset on the flesh is... Hostile toward God. We looked at this last time. Hostility is the mind set on the flesh. So thinking about the body, what the body needs, just look at a commercial on TV, just look at a movie, just read a book. You know, you're gonna you will be from any point in the world, any person in the world, you will get a a, a focus, most people, on 
the body, its needs, the here and the now, that which is passing away, and all of that focus on the world, by the world, is hostile toward God. That's what this says. The mind set on the flesh, on the here and the now, on the needs of the body, on the needs of the temporary. It's hostile towards God. God who has an eternal purpose for man. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Let's start right there. No other gods. And that's what we have in the world. Everything is a God. Everything is more important than God because God is not important at all in the world. And then verse 8, And those who are in the flesh cannot please. God cannot. It's in, they're incapable of it. So they're, they're unable and they're unwilling to please God cannot please God. In verse 9, he goes on and says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Now, wait a minute. Before we look at that, let me back up just for a minute. So hostility toward God is not pleasing to God, verses 7 and 8. The mindset on the flesh is a, is a mindset of fleshly living. And that's what he's meaning here. Mindset on the flesh is a mindset of fleshly living. And as we looked at, the false and the true from James chapter 1. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, we see a man named Jacob. And this is a, a good uh, picture also of this whole mindset of worldly living. And the, the two different types. There's the godly that are seeking everything they can to avoid living a worldly life. And the world, it just doesn't know any other way. And, and in Jacob, he, we see that he had 12 sons. And we have Joseph, the dreamer. You know, the one who had a coat of many colors. And he sees himself being raised up over his brothers and even over his father. It was a dream. It was a dream, dream given him by God. He shares it. He didn't have to share it. He might have taken some pride in it. I don't know his heart. That's the way the scripture reads. And certainly upset his brothers and even his father. But Joseph turns out to be a very spiritual man. He took a hard road, not by his own choice, not at the beginning, but he took it and he took it with grace and with, with forgiveness. His brothers take him, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, make it look like he was killed by wild beasts, and tell his father that he's dead. Just, there's the world. That's the world. Ten brothers that did that to him. And then there was Benjamin, his younger brother. Joseph is sold, sent off into Egypt. Into Egypt, he gets exalted. I mean, after living the best he could in the worst situations, he keeps getting exalted and exalted because God gives him dreams, but also he prophesies and he always does the right thing. He walks in wisdom by the power of God. So here's these two mindsets in a picture. After it's all over, after he's sitting on the top and his brother's coming, he could have destroyed them, had them put to death. You know, God, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He sees God in it. 
This is the picture that's being set up here in Romans chapter 8. Two mindsets. One's a hostile toward God and one's not. That's why in verse 9 it goes on and says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now in this, and there's four ifs in this passage. And I want to look at each part as it's connected to this word if. The last three ifs, or the next three ifs that we see, the word if, we're gonna, we're gonna, they're different, slightly different in the in the Greek. The first one really means if indeed. It means just that. If indeed, if it be so, if really, if if it and this if makes it is conditional. It's conditional on this very fact. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's just the way it reads. I mean, if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell on you, in you, um, then you are in the flesh. And so he's bringing into question initially, you know, are you a Christian person or not? If indeed you are a Christian person, then this follows. If you're not, if you're self-deceived like James is pointing out, the difference between the doers and the dreamers, the, the ones who embrace their humility and their sinfulness and their wickedness, and those who just leave it and forget about it right away. There's the two. But here in verse 9, he's setting up that same scenario. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now the next three are if as in because it's true. It's still if, but it's with the assumption that it is true in the Greek. The truth is assumed in the use of the word if. So verse 9 again, but if anyone does not have at the end of verse 9, but if, this is the second if, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, He does not belong to him. So the point that Paul is making is very clear. In the latter part of verse 9, which is, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So contingent upon upon belonging to Christ... A person must have the Spirit of Christ. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. You see, there are, there are results from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This is a chapter which is focusing on the presence of God. Let me ask you, let's just break for a second in our thought here in understanding the scripture. You know, when you go through life, do you feel like you're never alone? Do you have someone always living with you? You can stop at any time. You can break if you want, if you have to, you know, and just bow your head and pray. And someone's listening. I mean, you really know someone's there. You're not going through the motions. 
You're not speaking words into the air and they're not touching anyone's ears. You can't see, feel, understand. Actually, it's a it's something much better than that. It's something where you find relief, you find joy, peace, contentment in a situation where you know someone's there. You know you have the conviction that Almighty God is listening. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the presence of God that's so real, so present in the moment. It's a real relationship. Someone's listening, just like you would talk to a normal person on earth, and you're having two-way dialogue. Sometimes you're talking to someone, you know, they're just not listening. Like, you know they're not listening. I know husbands and wives understand this, but any, everybody does to some extent. Well, here we're talking about there's these effects that take place, serious effects, and it's continued upon this. There's someone right inside, close, closer than any friend could ever get. I mean, right on the inside, and they have your ear. You have their ear, and they're listening to you. That in mind, you know, make this statement, because the Spirit of Christ does not take up residence in the hearts of unbelievers. They do not belong to Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ does not take up residence. Oh, you're listening, you've heard from God. I mean, that's the idea from the, the world, the world of unbelievers. They don't belong to Christ. A person who has that view of God, no one can hear from God. I mean, that's just presumptuous. That's, that's the thought of an unbeliever. Residence is continued upon ownership. Just as ownership is contingent, contingent upon the residence of the Holy Spirit in the believer, so the residence is contingent upon ownership. They're both two, ha- two sides of the same coin. Unbelievers are enslaved to the lusts of the flesh, flesh, idolatry with the world, demonic spirits that can control the mind and the philosophy of, of worldliness. Believers are capable of overcoming the flesh, the world, and the devil. Believers are. But only through faith. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If Christ, and that's kind of assumed, is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. The body in and of itself does not contain spiritual life, the life of God. And we get this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, familiar verse to many. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust of the, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living person. So it came to life unlike unlike dead things, inanimate objects, sim- similar to animals which are spoken of as living things, meaning they are biological machines. So man became a biological machine, but more so because God breathed into him the breath of life and man was given a mind that could understand concepts unlike animals, Emotions, similar to animals, they can have fear, they can have anger. You know, these emotions, 
were simulations of emotions, which are really built not on reason, but on, uh, but on instinct, different, and the will. Man has a mind, emotions built on reason, or he can become unreasonable, uh, but he's a reasoning, apart from sin, he's a reasoning creature, and he has a will, and that will is controlled by a conscience which speaks well or not well, depending on how sinful a person is and how hardened they are in heart, and that will speaks of morality from the conscience. And this is different from animals that are instinctive. Now, if you don't believe that, you believe the word of God, put your faith in God's word because it's true. Uh, speaking of false prophets in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter says this, but these, meaning false prophets, are like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, using abusive speech where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Now understand this, God has rights we don't have. He's given man the right to kill animals for food because of sin in the earth. I'm not going to take the time to go into that. But make no mistake, because of the plight of men in our sinful condition, our self-will and disobedience to God, the whole creation was affected by it because man was given control over the earth. He was given responsibility over the earth. And when we fell, it fell with us. When a man falls in his household, he destroys the household. We all should, as mature people, understand responsibility because how irresponsible people we are, as in driving a car, you can kill people. It's, it's the state of things, the way they are, the way they work in God's universe. God is very mature. God is perfectly mature. God is perfectly responsible. Men are not. Now, we judge God by our standards. Let's not go there. Let's understand for a moment, let's slow down, let's understand that God is what his word declares him to be. Will not the God of all the earth do what's right? Yes. God, the, God's word declares it. God never lies. God is good. Let's go from that. By faith, take that as God's word, especially if you're a believer right now. And then also, a human being is a sinful and fallen race that is not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and if, it, if a person is not and indwelt by the Holy Spirit is like a natural brute beast, the whole sinful races apart from redemption, not possessing the life of God as all are meant to be. Man was created in the garden and he was, as we said, he was given the breath of life, he was given all of those abilities, he was given a conscience and he was able to speak and he was in a slightly different state well, not even slightly, than the redeemed. He was naive, he was perfect, he was good, as God created him, but he could fall. That's different the way it, the way it is with the redeemed. For this reason, Paul tells us, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. What's that mean? Well, the righteousness of Christ is imparted on the day of salvation. The day a person bows his head, sees that he's an unworthy sinner, 
He questions, is there mercy for me before the throne of God? When he actually is broken underneath the cross of Christ, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus living a godly life, sacrificing himself in our place, his place, the sinner's place, in order to redeem him, to save him from his sins. In that place, then at that point, the righteousness of God is imparted to him. He becomes a born-again believer, and he trusts in God for the salvation of his souls. A believer is a person who receives Christ as Lord. If thou shalt confess Jesus as Lord, thou shalt be saved. He trusts Christ to save him from the hour of judgment that's coming upon all every generation, every person from every generation. He trusts God to sanctify and keep him from evil by delivering him from sin all the days of the rest of his life. This is what it means that if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, that that fleshly mindset, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So there's this two parts of the person who is redeemed. The Spirit of Christ takes up residence in the heart of a believer. And that brings us to to verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and let's assume that it does at this point, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, I have to tell you, this is really good news for the believer. When you have your doubts, when you're not sure within yourself that you can live the Christian life with any degree of victory, when you've got past the ego that you're now a Christian and you're walking in God and you're forgiven and you're at the top of the world from the standpoint of knowledge of the gospel, when you stop for a minute just to consider just how positively sinful you still can be when your ego is running wild, when your, your instincts are kicking in and you're living your fleshly existence, you know, when that goes on, when that happens and you stop and then you consider, can I have a good day? Can I avoid temptation? Can I fight the world along with the flesh and the devil? And you feel like a baby on a battlefield. When, when that's you, here's the verse. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, I mean, in fact, is dwelling there, and you can get the joy in the presence of God, and you can feel contented that God has, you have God's ear, and he's willing to hear, and he loves you infinitely. When that's the case, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead The resurrection of Jesus Christ is is being imparted at this place, this place of faith and trust in what God's saying right here. The same person, the same eternal God who raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus being worthy to be raised from the dead, the same person who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That sinful, fleshly, indulgent, self-indulgent, self-energized person, that proud individual. He will give Christ life, resurrected life, to your 
mortal, mortal bodies. Through his spirit. It's not you. It's through Christ. The Christ who dwells in you. That's the promise. In this life, our mortal bodies, the bodies of believers, are not meant to be in control. But the life of the living Christ is to be in control by grace through faith. And this is what Paul says when he wrote to to the Corinthians in his first letter in chapter 15, verses 42 to 49. He said this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. We already talked about it. The last Adam was a life-giving spirit. Big difference between those two. Adam was just a man. He was a, a naive man. He was perfect in the day he was created. He was good, but he was capable of falling, and he did. And he brought the whole race with him. He brought us all with him. The last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, was a life-giving spirit. When he rose from the dead, he's capable of giving life. Not only giving life at salvation, but every day after. For those who call upon him. For those who take the time in prayer. For those who seek the face of God with all their heart. For those who don't just go through the motions, but those who really mean it. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. It's not meant to take first place in their lives, but it came first in time, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. That's right, he's the eternal son of the living God. As in the earthy one, so also those who are earthy. And as the heavenly one, so also are those who are heavenly. See, this is bringing us into the New Testament reality of Jesus Christ. The reality of God who lived as a person for 30 years, 33 years, he lived it to the full, perfectly, in every thought, word, deed, action, attitude, all of it, motive, all of it, perfect. He was sacrificed on our part on our, for our sakes. He took upon him our sins. He was raised from the dead after three days being placed in the earth. And so it says, just as we have, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that's Adam, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now that's to perfection when he talks about in the future. Right now, as in chapter 8 of Romans, we are told that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead right now dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's not future, that's present to your mortal bodies, through his spirit, who dwells in you. So to all my hearers who 
are confident in themselves that they've made a profession to Jesus Christ, that they have bowed the knee and called him Lord, and their lives have reflected that, not just in word, but indeed in their heart, in the desires of their heart, how they want to live. They want to live for others and not just for themselves. They don't want to be selfish. They don't want to exalt themselves above others, certainly not above God. It's, it's there and indeed. It's not just in word. For those people, I hope this is a comforting, encouraging message, as Romans is um, meant to be, as it's offering the Holy Spirit the reality of this. This is the way. This is the how-to by faith. Trust in these unchanging truths from a God who cannot lie to give victory to our daily walk so that the desires that are there can be fulfilled in how we live our life from day to day. Overcoming sin, overcoming temptation, overcoming the world and how it presses in on us and attempts us in many, many ways, overcoming the flesh, which inside there's that old man that seeks to go out, get out. Its, it's desire is for us. We must overcome it. And overcoming the devil who places before us temptations both from the world and through the flesh and in our minds. Don't If you think God doesn't do that, reread Ephesians 6 where it talks about the armor and then it talks about wrestling. That's right, that's close contact. And so the thoughts you might think they're coming from, I don't know whether you think they're coming from your own head or something you heard, when sometimes, not all the time, but they're coming from a demonic spirit seeking to overthrow you. Herein lies the ability that you have in the spirit, in the spirit to overcome, to live a victorious Christian life. If, in fact, you're listening in and you're not sure about being a Christian, if, in fact, you're listening in and you're not sure where you are in, in James's description of whether it's true, false religion, or it's or it's true. Are you a forgetful forgetful here? Are you assuming that you're in the in the kingdom of God and, and you're going to be possibly one of those who God says, "I never knew you, but I, I prophesied in your name." I mean, I went to church, I did all these things, and God knows your heart, and He knows you're not really a child of God. You never bowed the knee, and you're not really born again. You're not a regenerate new believer. You're not a new creation in Christ. God forbid, if that's who you are, then you can bow your head right now. You can, in the privacy of your own place, in, your, in the secrecy of your own heart, you can call out to God. You can speak to God and begin a, a life where you can call out to God and he can, He'll hear you. You know, even the, the prayers of those who turn from God's law are an abomination to God in his word. But for the person whom he knows, whom he's redeemed, who's he's imparted saving faith and they call him Lord, you know, for those people, he hears, he listens, he cares, and he will throughout all eternity. So with these closing words, let me pray for whoever it is that's listening to me at this point. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that, you know, though we're just men, women, children, we listen, we read, we understand in such uh, 
uh, a small way of these truths. We don't understand what it means to be eternal. We don't understand what it means to have always been. There's no time with God. It's you're eternal. We don't understand these things. But your word is true and it's, it's worth trusting in. Because the man who trusts in you, Lord, we know. The man who trusts in you and becomes a child of God, you impart not just the understanding, but the conviction, the assurance that it is true and that you are worth listening to. I ask your Heavenly Father, help every person listening to this to bow the knee and to receive the truth, whether a child of God and a real believer, to have victorious living or to enter into Christianity for the very first time and to start a life where they trust in God. They're no longer aliens. They're no more separated from the eternal God, no longer living on their own, exalting themselves in disobedience, but rather submitting, subjecting themselves to the will and love of God. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.